Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Your top story through the week. President Donald Trump heading for a showdown with America's allies at a Group of Seven summit this week in Quebec, Canada, with the European Union and Canada threatening retaliatory measures unless he reverses course on new steel and aluminum tariffs. Ellen Zentner, I'm pleased to say, joins us in the New York studio, Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. economist. Ellen, good morning to you. Good morning. Just how disruptive is this possible showdown this weekend? Well, I think it will um, give indications of whether there's going to be continued escalation or do we get some de-escalatory tone. Uh, and, you know, it, it things are escalating. Uh, when you let the steel and aluminum tariff uh, exemptions expire, then you await for an EU response, response likely to be something like, well, here are the goods from the U.S. we're going to target. And then what do we have in our back pocket? Uh, tariffs on autos, which then starts to target specific countries in Europe where we think the trade abuses are are happening. This is how escalation plays out. Uh, And this is what keeps uncertainty going uh, and what continues to to threaten to dampen investment in the U.S. despite the tax stimulus that we put in place this year. Very few signs at the moment here in the United States that this tariff talk and the escalation and rhetoric between the United (laughs) States and the rest of the world it's hurting growth. Yeah, so we've had a nice, we think that we're going through a, a nice rebound that we expected in the second quarter, that first quarter weakness uh, in growth was transitory. Um, and we are tracking, you've got tracking anywhere from in the in the fives down into the threes. But when you're talking about tracking in the threes as being some of the lowest GDP tracking we've seen, it's clear we're getting a rebound in the second quarter. Now, is that specifically coming from investment? Um, yeah. If you look at current uh uh, shipments, right? It points to still a, a, a nice lift to investment, which in the U.S. we've argued we've been uh, uh, in the midst of an on, ongoing uh, a cyclical upturn in capex prior to even the tax stimulus being put in place. Um, what we are seeing, though, that we're watching closely is that shipments, uh, uh, sorry, orders, some of the forward-looking indicators in the durable goods report, let's say, are suggesting a weaker pipeline going forward. Now, we don't know yet if that's just normal fluctuations or if it's companies finally putting their money where their mouth is, because they're telling us in the surveys, we're worried, we're uncertain, we may not know our future pricing structure, we may not know if supply chains will be disrupted. That typically is what depresses investment, yet we're not seeing it come through in the numbers yet. They're still investing. CapEx plans, by our measure, are still near record highs. So that's what's really important here, because the administration are very bullish on economic growth, and they're very bullish on a supply-side response, that you will get this improvement, this uptick in the CapEx cycle. As you know, Ellen, better than anyone, confidence leads investment. So are you basically assuming that that soft data (laughs) that we're starting to see kind of hit a little bit, will bleed into the hard data, into the CapEx decisions perhaps in the back half of this year? Well, that's what we have to watch. Uh, And of course, the back half of the year this year becomes more difficult for a whole host of reasons. Um, One, third quarter earnings growth is likely where we top out. 
uh, because going forward, the year-on-year comps for that will be increasingly difficult. It's something that Mike Wilson, our chief U.S. equity strategist, has been noting, and one reason why he's more bearish on on equities uh, than our peers uh, for this year. You've got fading effects of of tax stimulus. Uh, We don't uh, drop tax rates every year. Um, and so in the back well, half of this year, you've already had investors di- digest every bit of perfection we can digest from the tax stimulus. Yeah. And then that starts to fade. Let's sell Ellen Zentner here. You earned your stripes with piercing analysis of the American consumer. Years ago, I was like, who is this person? Ellen, I, I can't pronounce. Years can't ago, in 2003, spell. you I, called me the Pollyanna economist you know, because Ellen, I, Ellen was, was perpetual thinking, who optimism. Is this guy? This? Who is this guy in the bow tie? <clears throat> Staring at me weirdly. But, but, but the piercing bow tie. You, you <laughs> nailed the granularity of the consumer experience in America. What do you see right now? Uh, so right now, I tell you, I'm I am a walking example of the consumer dynamic in America today. I did. We're all my, buying fishing gear. No, no, that's that's a whole different animal. Okay. Uh, my fly fishing passion, let's set that aside okay. because that that's never, spending on fly fishing equipment never wanes. Um, but I did my nails yesterday myself, Tom. Wow. Gasp. Can, can, that's please, an economic indicator. Over, please. Not a bad job. Can I send my family to you? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> we can say, wait, wait, you know, uh, we can send can, that bill as I, well. I can smell trouble from a mile away. But let me, I reckon but, pretty but close let me tell trouble. you why, because this is yeah. important. So one thing that we noted coming into this year about the U.S. consumer was that the wealthy were not going to spend. A lot of pent-up demand has been met there. That's where the tax uncertainty yeah. is. No one's quite sure exactly what their tax bill is going to be like agrees. Year. 100% agree. Right, so my husband came to me and said, <clears throat> honey, this is a buckle down year. And I looked at him and said, does that involve Saks? Because if Saks Fifth Avenue is a buckle down year, right, then short Saks Fifth Mrs. Avenue. Because moving if I have to, you, if I have to curb my spending at Saks Fifth <clears throat> Avenue, um, then that'll tell you a lot. But the top income quintile in the U.S. represents 40% of all consumer spending. Yeah, seriously. And spending on luxury goods, the year over year growth rate in that has fallen off the map. And I would agree with you the mystery of these texts because nobody really knows can i just john jump in here but i got has james gorman seen the color of that nail polish no not today okay i i you know that could be the you, are you asking for trouble this morning? No, it's Keynesian it's pink. A good, it's a good spring If I were you, just, just mute the mic. <laughs> just mute the mic and stick no, clear. No, it's Keynesian pink. Okay. I knew right. I was going to get in trouble mentioning nail honestly, color this morning. Honestly, Tom Keynes is not going to let this go for the next couple of hours. Um, <laughs> where I see a key distinction between where you see growth going and the rest of the streets, not this year, it's next year. It's um the low twos when this administration and many people are looking for the threes the high twos what takes morgan stanley into the low twos well again it goes back to the fading uh stimulus of tax policy again we don't drop rates every year you tend to absorb the delta from stimulus in the year that it's enacted and then those comps everything beyond that becomes more difficult Um, What is holding growth above 2% next year is the raising of the budget caps and just direct government investment. When we pulled that into that numbers, it actually took what was the high ones growth forecast up to 2.1% next year because you have to account for that. So we didn't just put in tax stimulus with the corporate tax cuts, individual tax cuts. We followed it up in February, blowing past the budget caps, raising the budget caps to 
put in even more government investment on top of that. And that is just direct mathematics. You've got to pull that into your numbers. Still, yeah. that just gets us to a low twos growth rate. So just finally, well, the Federal Reserve set up for the Morgan Standard reality of a, a significant slowdown next year? Well, I think that if, if you look at their numbers, right, they, they've got 2.7 on the books today, yeah. Q4 over Q4 GDP this year, slowing to 2.4. We've got 2.4 <clears throat> slowing to 2.1. So the delta Oof. is the same, right? But all of us expect growth to continue uh, above potential, primary lift, yeah. primarily lifted by tax stimulus. Um, if you were to ask a policymaker if there's a difference between their 2.4 expectation and our 2.1, they would say there's no difference. It's more, to oh, me, GDP numbers are more, what story can you tell <coughs> behind it? And there's a yeah. story of fading tax stimulus here. This has been fantastic, Ellen Zentner. Thank you uh, so much. Greatly appreciate this this morning. We'll have to have her back as uh, 2018 unfolds, to say the least. This next guest, they picked up the phone on Thursday, and, and I said to Ritika of our crack team, I said, Ritika, this resume is like off the chart mint. We got to get him in Monday. Do what you can. And, you know, it's like National Bureau of Economic Research and the U.S. Senate and George Washington University, John. Quote, his utter ignorance of anything soccer-related is a constant source of embarrassment for fellow Europeans in the office. So I said, this guy would be perfect for John Farrell. Why don't you bring him in, John? Federico, I am so, so sorry that you're going to have to deal with this for the next 10 minutes. Um, Federico Santi, Eurasia Group associate, joins us now. Should we skip the football conversation? Would you we like already that? had it. We already had it. You know, World Cup, would, Italy. and Would you, know, you like to skip that, Federico? Would you like to make a quick comment? That's fine with me. I mean, Italy is not even in the World Cup this oh, year. Oh, really? I didn't know, know so. that. That's why he's bringing it up. That's, that's exactly why he's bringing it up. <laughs> Federico, politics has taken over. Um, we have a government. There's going to be a confidence vote in Parliament today. Talk to me about the government we now have in Italy and whether the fear that existed last week at times was, um, was justified. Well, I would say so. And it's uh, I think it's safe to say that political risk is very much back in the Eurozone after a period of relative calm that we saw. Um, I think it was some relief in the markets last week, as you know, really on the basis that a government was formed indeed and new elections avoided, which I believe people had come to see as the worst possible outcome, mainly based on the expectation that populist parties would do even better in case of a revote. Also, Savona will not be finance minister after all, which is positive in the sense that he had openly anti-Euro views. He's still in the cabinet, but in a sort of less consequential role. But, you know, this said, I still think that the outlook is very much a negative one. And it's a case of, I believe, things having to get a lot worse before they get better. We have an openly hostile, um, europhobic government in Europe. Uh, I mean, the shape of Italy. And we talk about this risk, Federico. Let's talk about this risk. What is the risk? Is it re-denomination risk? Or is it just the risk that this is a country that wants to spend a little bit more and issue a few more bonds? I think it's more the latter, but I would say that's problematic um, enough. The more outlandish items in the coalition government's program were removed. So, um, you know, there's no mention of uh, introducing a mechanism for leaving the Eurozone, for example, of ECB 
uh, buybacks of, of Italian government debt, for example, which were really scared. I think investors when the first uh, draft of the coalition agreement was leaked. But what's left is no less worrying. I mean, they're talking about a huge fiscal expansion estimated to be over 100 billion. That's 6% of GDP. That's simply not sustainable for a country like Italy at the moment. I, I put out on Tom Keaton books the other day, somebody, somebody who was a, a fan sent me and he said, give me three books on Italy. I mean, John, seriously, you know, 20 books on Italy. I don't know. And with you know, I, I did the usual books, but within that is the history, which is this is repetitive, or is this time different? How unique to you is this moment for Italy versus the 422 times since Napoleon? Well, we've definitely been here before, yeah. both in Italy and also in terms of other countries in the Eurozone. And in fact, we've tended to look at this through the lens of Greece in 2015 or Portugal in 2016, for example. So parties or new governments coming to power on a platform of rolling back austerity and essentially uh, boosting domestic demand through higher spending. But again, this clashes directly with new European rules, particularly on deficits. So I don't think this ends with Italy leaving the Eurozone, but again, it's still a problematic scenario. How do you respond when you hear conversations, strategists, pundits, economists say Italy is a wealthy nation? How can they be so messed up if interview after interview says Italy is a wealthy nation? Well, it is. When you look at savings rates, for example, Italy, it's much closer to Germany, right? The problem is um, the economy just simply hasn't been growing. And also the government has trouble collecting as many taxes as it should. So I think that's really the, the, at the heart of the problem. We talk about this heart of the problem and, uh, and whether the government's new approach is is the wrong one. Why isn't it the right one? Why isn't it the right thing that an economy that has basically been strangled by the single currency over much of the last decade shouldn't go out there and say to the rest of the Europeans, you know what, we should spend more. Look at our GDP. It's underperforming the rest of the continent. We need to loosen the fiscal purse strings here. And actually, you need to do the same thing over in Germany. That's a good point, actually. This is the age-old debate about fiscal austerity in the Eurozone. I think there's some truth to that. I think Italy could probably use a little more fiscal leeway. And there's no doubt in my mind that the Eurozone fiscal governance framework is, is clearly um, pro-cyclical. It doesn't make things easier, particularly in times of crisis or in the case <clears throat> of countries like Italy that just simply haven't been growing. The problem is fiscal expansion alone won't solve the problem. You need to combine that with more structural reforms. And that's something that the new government is definitely not planning to do. There's no appetite to do that? At all in, in Italy right now? Not at all. In fact, what they're talking about is rolling back past reforms that were seen as crucial for staving off the fall back in 2011, right? So this combination, I think, is very problematic. This government has actually shown themselves to be incredibly politically savvy. Um, what they did last week with President Mattarella actually was, was a stroke of genius. They introduced someone they probably knew would not get approved as the finance minister of Italy. And what they got as a result was a boost in the ratings in Italy from the electorate. And they also knew, the, the president knew that if they went back to the electorate, if there was another round of elections, these parties would do better because of it. I don't think we should underestimate how savvy, politically speaking, these two parties are. I do wonder the risk later this year that ultimately they push things too far and don't get what they want from the Europeans. What is the risk now that the agenda on the table is actually a moderate one compared to the agenda that could be on the table in 12 months' times if the Europeans don't get their act together and accept what is happening in Italy at the moment? I think that there's a very real uh, risk. They're surely politically savvy, particularly in terms of you know, the League, which is the far-right party, I think that they've played this very well, as you said. The problem is their coalition program is really, um, it's very hard to reconcile with, uh, you know, the constraints imposed on the government by the fragile state of the Italian economy. And also, of course, 
European rules, which are, re are really a proxy for what, uh, you know, let's say market discipline. So I think at some point there's got to be a some kind of flashpoint or, or standoff between the government and the European Union. How do you respond to people that say Italy is like Greece? I just don't buy it for a minute. I mean, well, the situation is very different, right? Yeah. Italy still has market access, not in a bailout program, much bigger country. I think the dynamic is the same in the sense that um, taking the commission, the European Commission head on and taking markets head on is ultimately a self-defeating strategy. So I do expect the government ultimately to back off. Uh, to back, back down, off to what? To materially scale down the, its ambitions in terms of fiscal expansion in particular, uh, or more likely even the coalition to break down rather than any move towards your exit. The real question is how much market pressure, market discipline are we going to have to see before that happens? Federico Santi, it's great to catch up with you. You raise your group. The president tweeteth. Uh, he has been uh, more than active uh, this morning. We had a tweet 55 minutes ago, but one in 12 minutes and one in 10 minutes uh, as well. These are more on domestic issues right now. He does point out this is the best time, all capital letters, E-V-E-R, this is the best time ever to look for a job, quoting James Freeman of the Wall Street Journal. That's a good talking point. With Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute joining us right now on international economics. Adam, on a domestic basis, is, the, is it the best time ever to look for a job? Not ever, but in an awfully long time, Tom. I mean, you and I both know there were people coming out of high school, coming out of college who for several years had a really tough time. We are now seeing by every measure we've got on labor markets that there is demand for labor, that people can find jobs, that people feel safe to look for a new job if they want to switch jobs. We're still not seeing wage growth, but we're definitely yeah. getting there on employment. Does this better growth, even if it's a short-term 3.54%, or even if it's sustained, make America great again, does it lead to better productivity, or is it the other way around? Uh, it's going to lead to better measured productivity to some degree because there's an inherent measurement issue that when the economy is doing well, services seem to be more productive when they actually are just more used. There's also going to be a certain amount of increase in productivity because right. just you pay people better and you make better use of your equipment. Nonetheless, the uh, underlying productivity issues are not being resolved right now. If anything, yeah. they've, they've improved a tiny bit, but the, this, this hot economy is a good basis, but it's not going to be enough. Right. Okay, within your prodigious abilities and the people that you work with at the uh, Peterson uh, Institute, let me ask you an open question. What upsets you most? What is the distinctive feature that upsets you most about this administration's trade policy? The incredible arbitrary short-term nature of the decision-making. I don't mean just that they're basically incompetently assuming everyone would roll over when they threaten them and nobody from Mexico to Beijing to Berlin is doing so. What I mean is that they're assuming that if they play hardball on a short-term deal and keep changing their mind and do things for short-term advantage without paying attention to the rules, they end up hurting the U.S., making people less willing to make deals, deterring investment. It's an incredible intervention into markets in an arbitrary, autocratic way. It's not capitalist. It's not Republican. It's not pro-growth. What should the Allies do in response, Adam? 
It's a fair question, Jonathan. I mean, I, I gave a speech in Brussels right after Trump was elected now a long time ago, and I said there may come a point at which everyone's just going to have to slap the U- U.S. upside the head uh, to wake us up, and I think we're at that point. Um, we've got now Mexico and Canada standing up against U.S. tariffs and preparing to retaliate. We've got the EU preparing to retaliate. We've even got Japan preparing to retaliate. And, of course, China's not an ally and is retaliating. And this is without any real coordinated effort on their part. And I think it's unfortunately the right thing for the allies to do at this point. And they have to retaliate as close to WTO rules as they can. And there's plenty of room for that. It's just going to be a little faster than WTO rules would normally allow. Adam, why don't the allies look at the um, barriers to entry between themselves and then make a deal between themselves to cut tariffs. I mean, for instance, the EU still has significant barriers to entry for the Japanese to come into the European Union, um, vice versa if you look at deals across the planet. Why aren't they getting together? And actually, if they want to secure the moral high ground here, why don't they do it in practice? Well, it's a fair question, and there are two factors at work. One is, as Paul Krugman noted in a blog the other day, as we all know, trade negotiations should be a lot of, maybe not unilateral, but willingness to cut tariffs, especially in deals, and it turns out to be very hard because producer interests and political imagery plays a big role. But the second thing is, some of what you're talking about, Jonathan, is already happening. I mean, the EU is making trade deals or has made trade deals with Canada, Mexico, and Japan. Uh, Canada and Mexico are continuing to deal with each other on NAFTA, whatever the Trump administration does. Japan is doing CPTPP and showed more leadership there than we thought and is looking at a Mexico deal. So, you know, this is, yeah. some of that is already happening. Adam, uh, will this affect Fed policy? I mean, Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX. Does the NX ballet end up affecting Chairman Powell's path? Not much. I mean, this is going to maybe slow the rate of hikes, but only if we get such a big trade shock that it ends up being a negative supply shock. I mean, there's not going to be any inflation that matters coming out of this. Um, and if it is inflation, it's going to be a one-time, what, what central bankers consider a one-time shock. You wait to see whether it passes through or not before you react. So the usual focus on inflation will not cause them to look at this. Unemployment, it unfortunately is likely to affect employment, particularly Peterson Institute. We released this analysis of how many jobs will be displaced in the auto industry and suppliers. Yeah. If this tariff war comes out, it's somewhere between 200,000 if the U.S. just does self-harm, 600,000 if, um, if, if the allies retaliate. Either way, that's real human pain, but in the macro economy of 150 million workforce, that's not going to change Fed policy. It's all about what happens to the dollar, what happens to the interest rates. That's the investment side is where the real effect is felt on macro and thus the Fed. Dr. Posen, thank you so much. And again, we're looking at that dollar after a run uh, here over the last number of months. Adam Posen is with the Peterson uh, Institute. No doubt he'll be riding up a storm here as everyone else is in the coming days and weeks. With us, Robert G. Kalpin, we've been talking about his book, Asia Cauldron and the South China Sea. The jewel of the moment in one of my books of the summer is The Return of Marco Polo's Road. And in it, our older and updated essays by Kaplan and also some new material as well. 
Robert Kaplan, I would go back to December of 2001. Your wonderful essay, which I remember crystal clear at the time, looking the world in the eye of the marvelous Samuel, Samuel Huntington up at Harvard. What would the gentleman of our clashing and of our civilizations, what would he think of, trade, of Trump trade policy? Sam Huntington, who died at the end of 2008, would say that the uh, the current emerging trade war between China and the United States vindicates his prediction of um, of an arrogant West and an assertive East and a warlike and a warlike Muslim mi- Middle East. Look at it this way: um, free trade was part of a policy of liberal world order building for 75 years after World War II. But if we're entering a period of geopolitical competition, trade becomes an aspect of that. You know, a trade war is merely an aspect of a world at amoral geopolitical competition. So it is not unusual, it's very logical that we're seeing these trade tensions as we move out of liberal world order building into an era of just stark competition between blocks of countries and continents. Robert Kaplan, how do you respond to critics that may say free trade is really just another proxy for stability, which is a proxy for American dominance? Um, That's true. Um, But that American dominance has brought a world whereby you have uh, access to hydrocarbons at maritime choke points. You have, you know, you have a general, you you have a world where there is less, where violence is contained contained at the edges, there is no major interstate warfare. That's all part of the system created by the United States after World War II that has benefited everybody, including the Chinese, because the Chinese Navy, as bigger and better as it gets, still still relies on the United States Navy to provide uh, to provide safe and secure sea lines of communication where piracy is con- confined to the edges. So you believe that the Chinese leaders see the United States Navy as securing their trade routes? Uh, up until now, they have. And the fact that they're now challenging the United States Navy means that the Chi- they believe that the Chinese Navy is reaching a level of maturity yeah. where, it can, that where it can protect its own trade routes, trade routes across the Indian Ocean, which is the world's global energy interstate, connecting the, you know, the, the oil and right. gas in the Middle East and, and the customers in Asia. Robert Kaplan, does, does all of this allude to Elizabeth Economy's new effort, the Third Revolution, and that we're seeing a third revolution out of China that we are unprepared for? Well, uh, w- what exactly do you mean, Tom? By a President third Xi is President Xi has has changed the uh, debate, the dialogue, the thrust of the federal system within Beijing, and maybe uh, harkens back to Mao or leaders of that era. Absolutely, yeah, I, um, that's absolutely true. We've had, let's call it, enlightened authoritarianism under non-charismatic collegial technocrats from basically the end of. Mao Zedong's rule, uh, uh, you know, 
And between Deng Xiaoping and the emergence of Xi a few years, five years ago or so, we've had this kind of enlightened, collegial, non-charismatic rule. Right. Xi has changed the model. He, you know, now we're seeing a more centralized, charismatic uh, uh, cult of personality right. developing. Has Trump changed the model in America? I believe that he has, because I believe that the print and typewriter age was conducive to a certain kind of American president. And the digital video era is conducive to another kind of which Trump is. It doesn't mean every future president is going to be like Trump, but it does mean that American democracy is changing its personality according to the technology uh, in which it operates. Would it be useful for the American uh, political class and academics to spend more time trying to figure out how to live in a world with a dominant China rather than trying to go head to head or toe to toe with it in, with, in a military or even in a, in a trade uh, uh, climate? Actually, a significant part of the of the elite, we'll call it the American elite in Washington, New York, elsewhere, you know, already understands that we're going to have to get along with a China that is, you know, that is not only emerging but which is inexorable in returning to power after about 175 years of decline. Uh, the the administration, however, believes believes opposite it believes that it can uh, you know that it can stand up to China both in terms of trade and general Mattis uh, the Secretary of Defense is certainly being more aggressive than the secretaries of defense under Obama in Asia you have been a supporter of a neorealism a realism and this goes back to Mearsheimer, which I mentioned earlier of Chicago but as much to dr. Kissinger how do you respond, Robert Kaplan, when you see Dr. Kissinger sitting with President Trump, giving advice as the elder statesman, giving wisdom? What would you like Dr. Kissinger to do in those moments? Well, first of all, I, I, I'm a bit relieved that he's giving advice to, um, to Donald Trump because Kissinger, you know, basically represents a, a, a moderate Republican realist internationalism. In other words, moderation, a center-right realist edge. So whatever he must be saying to Trump, you know, has to help to try to moderate him. The question is, is Trump listening? Because simply because you go in and brief somebody once every few months does not mean you have the kind of influence over him compared to the people who yeah. brief him every day. So we shouldn't exaggerate that. Um, I think what uh, what I'd like you know what I'd like the, uh, President Trump to be hearing is that um, you know the last thing America needs is a military conflict with China, a live fire military conflict with China, and it, you know because that would lead into or or even a, a state of tension that is so high that we're back in an age of major interstate state, high-tension rivalry, which we have not seen since the early days of the Cold War. Robert Kaplan, we've been talking about you and your book, uh, The Return of Marco Polo's World, War Strategy and American Interests in the 21st Century. Uh, are you going to read Seymour Hersh's new book, Reporter? Because uh, he's certainly got a different take on people such as Henry Kissinger. 
Um, I, 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 I'm very familiar with what Seymour Hersh has written on Henry Kissinger. Um, I'll be very interested in seeing the book. Um, it's you know it's unclear it'll say anything worse than uh, Seymour Hersh has already written about Henry Kissinger. So do you think that the United States has the uh, uh, the intellectual ability to deal with an increasingly powerful China? I think the United States certainly has the intellectual ability. The question is, will the political structure and establishment be able to harness that ability and craft a moderate policy? Robert Kaplan, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. He's with Eurasia Group, a prolific author, The Return of Marco Polo's World, War Strategy and American Interest in the 21st Century. I just can't say enough about the book. Um, it, it was an immediate book of my summer, that with uh, Garrett Graff's The Threat Matrix on Mueller and the FBI as well. But I really can't say enough about the value of the set of essays in the return of Marco Polo's world to sharpen the discourse on uh, America, China, and Asia. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.